Welcome to Meanwhile at the Museum, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes with the people, stories, and shenanigans that make Cincinnati Museum Center what it is. I'm Cody Hefner, and I'm joined today by Tony Lawson, who is our Senior Director of School and Teacher Partnerships, correct? That is correct. Yeah, thrilled to be here. Glad to be honored uh, to be joining my colleagues in this like lovely podcast. This is a treat for us. I mean, you are... You're a living legend around here. When did you join the Museum Center family, Tony? I am edging close to 27 years now. Um, and so I tell people that I started when I was five, but uh, they don't believe it. And Human Resources doesn't like me to say things like that. So I was a junior in college back in 1997 and took this like quick little part-time job in the Museum of Natural History and Science. Like, yeah, this thing. I'll just do this until I graduate and then get my my real job. Well, we see how that worked out. The, I found my real job. This was your real job. You just didn't know it at the time. Yeah, the museum had to discover me as like an artifact. Uh, the, they had to discover me. And now you know too many secrets, so we can't let you go. That was the goal when I started. That was like my, my little three-year evaluation. Like, Tony, you don't know enough dirt and secrets. That institutional knowledge, if you know everything, then you're safe. So... <laughs> Hoping that'll stick around for about another 25 years, and it'll be great. You said 27 years. Um, this month that that we're recording, the Children's Museum is celebrating 25 years. So you predate that in this building, which is interesting to me because I first met you, and the way I knew you for so long was the Children's Museum guy. You were the director of the Children's Museum in the building, um, and you've... You've evolved some in the in the past handful of years, but that's always like this lasting memory that I have of you. Like first and foremost in my mind, you are the children's museum guy, um, and now you've you've transcended that. But when did when did that change happen? When did you go from the science museum to the children's museum? Okay, well, first I love that you're calling me the children's museum guy because the informal title that I have given myself is children's museum historian oh, because great. I did join before children's museum, you know, uh, before it moved over here to Union Terminal, opened up here. Um, so yeah, my uh, my history. I started. I was a junior in college, studying to be an environmental scientist, University of Cincinnati. I was for sure set that I was going to uh, be out sampling creeks and looking at the little macroinvertebrate insects that live in creeks. And I can tell by looking at that what's polluted and what's not polluted. So I was working in a Barnes and Noble bookstore at the time, and um, a, a friend of mine who um, like he worked here during college part time. He was doing some of the featured exhibits. He's like, hey. The museum's got this Jurassic Park exhibit coming in where it's going to have all of these artifacts and movie props from the, and this is the original Jurassic Park movie before Jurassic Park 14 came out recently or whatever it was. Um, so this is the first one. And so like, sure, that's more science-y than Barnes & Noble. I'll come and do that. So I, yeah, I started there and like, oh, this isn't bad. I could totally embrace this until I graduate and kind of worked there and in the Museum of Natural History and Science. Um, until about, uh, and then I was graduating in about a month before Children's Museum opened here, that fateful question was asked of me, do you want to move over to the Children's Museum? And you said? Actually, no. <laughs> I said, nah, you know what? I love the museum gig, but I've got these environmental sciences degrees. I really need to get out and get my environmental science job. And so they gave me a week or so and like, are you sure? I mean, you can job hunt while you're working here, like, no, I'm cool. And then another week or two later, like, so Tony, you're not signing a lifetime contract. Can you just work with us a few months? Like, oh gosh, fine. I'll work with you a few months. Um, but then that's it. Like January, get you through the holidays. going to find my environmental science job. Yeah. 27 years. The museum really bet on itself. They're like, just give us, just hang out a little bit. Trust us. And we need to make this a recurring theme of the podcast to guess people's degrees. Because I had no mm -hmm. idea your degree was in environmental science. Yeah, it's uh, something that uh, back in uh, the old days, so I'm putting old in air Quotes, but back in the days when I was hiring, I think a lot of people came in with, uh, you had your history degrees and your science degrees, and people weren't really going to school to work in museums. Um, but that was always one of the amazing things, being director of Children's Museum for so long, that I got to hire, like, oh, good, this person's an art teacher, and this person's 
a community artist, and this person uh, studied science. I've got an English major, a social studies person, three former teachers who just didn't like being in the classroom and it being so formal, and Miss Carla, who was just a mom and a grandma and just loved kids, and so you could have all of us from these different backgrounds, and it didn't have to be all education, all science. So still embrace the science, love the science, can talk about macroinvertebrate insects all the time, but yeah, the uh, science guy learned all about child development and learning through play. Was it the hole in the ozone layer that really drove you to environmental science? Were you like, I'm going to fix that thing? I was not smart enough nor ambitious enough to try to tackle that. <laughs> Truly, it was, I just love to be outside. And I thought, love to be outside. It would be great to have a job where I work outside. Has that been a lifelong love of yours? Is that something you, you developed in childhood that, that pointed you in that direction? Yeah, I was lucky to grow up in the, all right, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. See y'all when the streetlights come on. And that was just it. You rode bikes all day. You played baseball. Did lots of camping and bike riding when I was young. Um, some of my favorite memories, probably when I was more in the middle schoolish, high school days, was visiting my grandfather's farm down in Kentucky. Just loved being there and outside. And I think that's really where it cemented. You know, I, I really need to be outside. What's really awesome about that is you think back and you say, how did I get where I am now? And you just kind of trace your childhood to see what those moments were and what's really fun about the museum as a whole but the the children's museum also is we give kids the opportunity to sort of play those roles or or spin those out something that they're interested in or that they love or that they never knew they were interested in let's let them play around with that and see where it takes them and you know, we have the Dinosaur Hall, we have Made in Cincinnati, we have Cincinnati Emotion, science and history exhibits. Is every kid who walks out of here going to be a paleontologist? Maybe not. Maybe they do go to school to study history, and that may not be where they end up. But uh, it's that opportunity to play with curiosity and see where it leads you. And the fact that curiosity drives the child to make those decisions and find their own interests, I think, has kind of worked with parents and things over the years in Children's Museum. You often would hear, like, okay, come on, you've played with this enough. We got to see something else. We got to see something else. And, like, you know, that that's okay. We really want them to see everything else. But right now, your child is really mastering the skill or your child is really showing that boy, she loves animals and she's hanging out with Shelly the turtle. And the first thing she does every time when she comes in is say hi to Shelly the turtle. Um, she wants to spend all of her time in the animal area in the woods area. Like, you're definitely seeing some interest here in animals. Maybe we have a future biologist here, maybe in seven months. She's like, meh, Shelly. Actually, she wouldn't say that to Shelly because Shelly the turtle is definitely a rock star, but could be like, oh, wait, you know what? I've mastered this. I've, I've seen enough of animals. Let's go check out space or caves or I love the flat boat. So you're right. Just kids finding what interests them and then just getting to dive in. The role of museums, you mentioned it, just inspiring curiosity and showing them all the different pathways that they could go. I was actually just looking at some of the survey results. When, when guests visit, we send them a survey afterwards to say, how was your visit? Tell us a little bit about it. And the majority of people come here for entertainment or to spend time together. And I think it's because they take for granted. They know they're going to come in. They're going to learn something, but they want to be entertained and they want to do it together. So you're combining all of that. And what's always been fascinating for me, I've asked you to do different media opportunities um, or said, hey, I have to go do an interview. Can you give me something, um, an activity to do that's directed to early childhood development? And I remember one time you gave me a jar of plastic bears in all different colors. And you say, here, and I'm like, what, what am I supposed to do with this? And you go, this is perfect for sorting, uh, sorting colors and understanding patterns and things like that. And I'm like, this is so basic. But you have to put yourself in a child's mind and understand that they've not learned these things yet, which is, it was always something fascinating to me that you think something for three-year-olds, four-year-olds is so basic. And then you become an adult and you have no idea how to teach the basics. And here you are, this environmental science master who has now become a master in early childhood development. 
that is so incredible. So when they're playing, they're learning. Often we so overcomplicate what learning, particularly science. So we hear that a lot when we talk to early childhood educators, especially. They can, like language skills, they, and they do. In college, when they're earning their degrees, they spend a lot of time with language and literacy skills and social emotional skills, uh, math development. There are a lot of times that you know, early childhood educators and you know, early educators, the last science class they had might have been in high school. And so they really didn't have to, most of them, or many of them, they don't have to take that in college. And so they come in and they're remembering, so we'll use science specifically as, okay, there was this thing with arcs and vectors and Avogadro's number probably came in there. And there was probably some really like chemistry, big equations that I don't remember thinking, oh no, one, science, play, learning through play. If there's something that I will phrase that I've said more than anything else in my career here, it's always learning through play let the kids play. You mentioned sorting by color and shape or creating a pattern which leads into predictions or just learning to communicate different ways, learning to just draw, giving them an open-ended piece of paper and drawing and like, wow, my child is really interesting what he is observing by looking at what he's drawing on this piece of paper. So simple skills, but leading them to become scientists or historians when they grow up. And not to be that generation or that person who's like screen time is bad and and computers and games and all that stuff is bad, but especially from a young age, being bored or having to use your imagination, having to create that yourself is so important because if you're watching shows or you're watching movies or you're playing games, it's sort of, it's doing that creation for you. So going into the Children's Museum and running the diner or going grocery shopping, you are creating that world for yourself. You're making those decisions for yourself. And, you know, I, I have children and I always think, oh, I don't want them to be bored. What what can I do? What activity can I give them? How can I make them have fun? And you sit back and you realize, when I was a kid, I was bored a lot. You would just sit in the car and you just stare out the window. You daydream, you pay attention to stuff, you notice different things. So, Parents, as you bring your kids into the museum, let them go. Let them figure it out themselves. And yes, you do want to be involved. You want to share those moments with them. But letting them explore and and get hands-on and just learn how to play themselves is so important. really is. Thinking of when they're creating a piece of artwork, they are finding some type of joy or some type of experience that's really connecting with them. And there are times when you see grown-ups will maybe, oh, here, let's just take this color and we'll put this here. Or here, let me take your paper and I'll do this. Like, no, that let them embrace that piece of artwork. It may look like a masterpiece to you. It may look like this big blotch of scribbles on the paper. But to your child, those big blotch of scribbles really do mean something. And so it's the fact that they're guiding that. Um, and just thinking about guiding play, Maybe my two favorite items that are in the National Toy Hall of Fame are the cardboard box and the wooden stick because they can be (laughs) so many different things. And there have been fascinating studies where people would give like, okay, here's this toy or this item and we don't know what it does. You have to figure it out. And then, okay, here's an item and here are 17 different buttons and things that we can press and we can do. And the kids, like that one thing, like just figure it out. They turned that and they played with that thing for hours. But the one where there's like 17 prescripted things to do, like eh, five minutes later, like, meh, I'm done. You can see it with toy stores now. You'll go through, might see 20 aisles of toys. And then back on the like lowest counter, the bottom two shelves next to the restrooms is the, I cringe when I think about it, the signs that say creative toys. Shouldn't all toys be creative? But that's where you get the Play-Doh and the building blocks and so forth. Yeah, and even with you know action figures and, and dolls and things like that, toy companies are prescribing that so much because often they're coming from movies. And mm-hmm. so if kids are playing with them, they're recreating that. It's always really great when you see kids mix and match all of them, and they're not in some big adventure, but they're using them to play school or to do something mm-hmm. like that. So they're they're breaking out of those boxes. And by the way, uh, cardboard box and stick, there's a Venn diagram with kids, cats, and dogs 
all coalescing uh, around, so much. around that, right? right? The cat's sitting in it. The dog's probably trying to eat it. And then the kid's playing with it. So that is a lovely uh, just view. I'd love to see a movie on that one. That'd be great. Or a TikTok video or something. Right. We get, we get dog food delivered in a cardboard box that's just big enough that it spans the steps perfectly. You could ride that thing down the stairs for sure. That's right. And that's just that's learning to take acceptable, safe risks. So we uh, have to be careful, clearly. As somebody who rode his tricycle down the basement stairs twice when he was five years old, and the second time my mom said, well, I told you not to do it the first time. You shouldn't have done it the second time. Um, I now know I will never ride my bike downstairs again. So there is that, like, I'm going to ride the cardboard box down the stairs. Like, okay, do you have a plan for how to do that? How can I help you build some safety measures as opposed to, like, no, we need to, like, wrap you in bubble wrap and make you sit on the couch. So yeah. that's really important. The cause and effect is important as well. When you rode your tricycle down, what happened the first time, and why did you do it the second time? Uh, so the first time, I I don't know if it was just poor motor skills that I was riding my bike down the hallway, and I just took a left <laughs> turn and tumbled down, or if it was, I don't know, I wonder how close I can get to the stairs, or maybe I just thought, eh, I walked down the stairs riding it's the same thing. Um, so that was the first one. The second one, I, I don't know. Maybe I was still dizzy from the fall down the stairs. I have no idea why <laughs> I would have thought that I could have done that a second time. But I can guarantee that it's only happened twice. So we're good. <laughs> so the second time you're trying to perfect on the, you were trying to learn from the mistakes of the first one. That's, I love the way you frame that. And I did not succeed. Clearly, <laughs> I, I was just as clumsy and oafish when I came down the second time. Well, it's, <laughs> so kids have to learn that as well. They have yeah. to learn what doesn't work as much as they need to learn how to do things. What are some of those moments you've seen in the Children's Museum where a kid has learned a lesson the hard way, but, you know, everything turned out okay? Well, it's fascinating you mentioned that because years and years ago, uh, this might be, oh, this is probably... 12, 15 years ago or more, um, I'm sitting in a meeting and I have my, my little walkie-talkie radio on. Just you never know when you might hear calls from the staff. And I'm hearing lots of chatter. Like, okay, well, it sounds like we've got a, I don't know, must be a busy day. Something's going on in the Children's Museum. And I keep hearing chatter and I start to, hey, maybe I'll pay attention a little more. And then I hear the term, all right, they're bringing the jaws of life in. <laughs> So at that time, I think, you know, please excuse me. I'm going to see what's happening in my museum. To be, to be clear, we did not have a um, kid-sized fire station <laughs> where these would have come from. No, but maybe future exhibit planning, get that in the kid's town. That'd be a fantastic fire station. Um, no, so um, I should have prefaced this story with everybody was great. We loved the changes we made in that exhibit. So anyway, I now make my way to the museum and I see the fire department and the jaws of life are making their way down the escalators into the children's museum entrance and they're just going into the woods. And at that time, when you walk into the woods, you've got the, the big tree where the slide comes out and there were these holes. And so we had we had uh, little like mushroom building things in there when we first opened and then we had... Um, different stuffed animals of animals you would find in local woodlands in that area. Well, there was just a child, and they thought, you know what? I totally could fit inside that <laughs> hole. And they did, and they were in there, and they were playing, and they were throwing stuffed animals around, and it was amazing, and it was fun. And then his mom's like, okay, it's time to go. And like, uh, I'm stuck. And so they went, and they tried to get the child out, and no matter where they could twist themselves. And the child wasn't panicked, like, hey, I'm cool. This is fine. This, this is fun. So everybody, totally cool head at that time. Maybe not our exhibit team, and when they heard the jaws of life, were going to cut apart the tree. Yes, right? So paint the picture. Was it like Winnie the Pooh getting stuck in a tree hole, so you got this kid's legs <laughs> kind of kicking out the one side? Oh, lovely question. Other way. So they, okay. thankfully, very smart. They backed in. And so that was good. So like their uh, like their head and everything was out. This is an amazing bit of contortion to have gotten in there in the first place. So kudos to the child for getting in there. So they backed in and um, just got themselves wedged in there. So here I make my way down again. Child's my mom's cool about it. Everybody's cool about it. Um, and they're like, okay, gosh, how are they going to cut apart my tree um, to get this child out? And then just as they're about to like, all right, let's get into this thing. It's like, oh, wait a second. What if I just like move my shoulder? 
bink, fly right out. Totally fine. I was presenting at a conference recently, and uh, one of the uh, people with whom I was uh, presenting, uh, she also worked at the museum, and one of her coworkers was there. And so I see the coworkers kind of looking at me and uh, walks up after the presentation. She's like, I know you. You were director of the Children's Museum. My child was the one who got caught in the tree. Like, <laughs> like my child's a teenager now. It's like, that is amazing and a story we love to tell all the time now. So acceptable risk. We would have loved to have kept those open. We decided, you know what, at that point, we don't want to risk the jaws of life needing to eventually cut apart the tree because other kids see that like, I want to try that. And you never know. We got Mr. Bill, who was on the podcast before you, Mr. Bill looked down like, I can do that too. We don't want Mr. <laughs> Bill stuck in the tree. So at that point, we did decide, why don't we just put some um, of our uh, museum collections in there and we'll just put some plexiglass over that. Still interesting, still engaging. Nobody's going to get stuck in there with the groundhog. I never realized that's what those holes were. Because as soon as you started talking about it, I was like, is that the one where the groundhog is now? The one where the groundhog That's is now. That's a pretty small hole. I was impressed. Was part of you disappointed they didn't get to use the Jaws of Life? I feel like we should have just taken them back to the exhibit department. Or I don't know. Maybe, I, mean, I guess that was long before Union Terminal Restoration. But it would have been great if we could have said, we're eventually going to take this thing apart. Can you just go ahead and just tear this apart now? Exhibit department probably would have loved to have had a little bit of demolition work take place. Yeah, we we should have taken them back to the shop and like, just show us what they can do. Right. Oh, I know. I know. It, it was such a uh, a joyful way to use them as well. I mean, there's so many sad stories probably come from the jaws of life, but I don't know. It was an oxymoron to say to use the jaws of life in a fun way. I don't know. So glad we didn't need them that way. Yes. I, I'm sure most most cases are not in a fun way, but mm-hmm. you got to train people on them somehow. And that's that's probably pretty fun. Yeah, just just rip something apart with these things. Just show us how they work. When when our programs on wheels vehicles reach their final legs, I think that's the way we send them out. I bet my team members who have driven those things hundreds of thousands of miles would probably uh, love to be the first ones to do a little bit of cutting on those. I actually talked to Val yesterday, and she estimated 20,000-plus miles in a year. Each vehicle, I would uh, would be my guess. Yeah, it's just it's amazing. I think last year the uh, outreach team led oh it was over fourteen hundred programs out in the community. Um, so it's just amazing. As much as we love to get people here to the museum to see our lovely exhibits and be inspired by our building, we know it's hard to travel. There are some places that just can't go that far. Transportation, bus transportation is really hard. School days are so packed with everything. So just love that our outreach team can take as much of the museum as we can out to them. And if you remember from growing up or if you have kids in school now, this is when you have the museum come in and do a program in the gym or in the auditorium, something like that, where essentially the field trip comes to you. Field right? trip comes to you. That's right. So we have settings where we'll set up in the gym and the students will come through. We'll set up in a classroom and like we have five third grade classrooms and they'll just take turns just cycling through seeing Miss Karen teach something about history or Miss Val teach something about uh, biology or something with early childhood skills. I mean, it's just, it's, it's amazing and they're so engaging and so much fun and so popular. I've seen some of the programs on wheels in action at different community events we've done or we've gone to. And the team is great because they're so engaging and so knowledgeable of the information that they're getting across, but also so ready not to take any crap from, you know, especially middle school kids or those preteen kids that are just at that point where they're the top of the food chain in the elementary school. So they get a little big for their britches and they, they want to be a little smart, Alex. And I've seen Karen, for example, just kind of not entertain it. She's not mean or anything like that, but she is just very ready to meet their energy. Uh, and it's really great because that, too, is a learning and a development moment for, for those kids. Miss Karen's got the, she'll like, don't make me be Grandma Karen. I mean, and she can just uh, lock it down. And uh, as we think about these experiences, students being in classrooms, again, super important, so important. Them having visitors come to them, 
and that's that's something different. That kind of breaks up that traditional school day. And when that happens for the first time or first two, there's just this new energy and excitement. And sometimes it's hard to control those emotions. Or as you mentioned, when you're a teenager, like I really want to be interested in this, but man, my classmates totally would just think I'm lame if I'm so I'm gonna play it cool. But every once in a while, it's because they'll sneak in and say. I wouldn't tell my classmates, but this was really the most fun school day I've ever had. Or I would love to be a scientist like you are, talking to the team who was there presenting the program. So, uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot of emotions to be controlled when you're in those settings. And it, field trips here, I mean, just think about the excitement. Like when a school comes in for the first time, you see the students like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I need to run and I need to scream and hear my echo in here. And so that's just building those skills. You're getting out to try new things. Um, that energy is hard to control. In the way the building is with the with the rotunda, it's so great to walk into the rotunda. And if your eyes are closed, if there's one third grade class in here, just one, so you get about 30 kids, it sounds like the rotunda is packed wall to wall because they're so amped up and their their voices just carry and echo. But it's really exciting. It's probably a little terrifying a little overwhelming for their teachers to be like oh no they've multiplied they've multiplied they're ganging up on me but uh as a staff member here like that's what it's all about you feel that energy is just bouncing around and then you flash back to when you were a kid and when you were going on field trips which i think is a lot of people who are in this building and work in this building that was their first experience with cincinnati museum center on a field trip and now to see that and a new generation and new classes mm-hmm. coming in is very cool. It is. And that you're right. Field trips are just, these are such memorable experiences and absolutely aging myself here. But I so recall a first grade field trip to the Cincinnati Museum of Natural History when it was over on Gilbert Avenue. And I still have very vivid memories of walking through the cave and taking a classroom program over there. And that was... 42, three, four years ago. I mean, so a long time. And I still have those memories there. So they are just such powerful things that we take with us. And so we say kids come on field trips and they take classroom programs. And yes, they are. They are learning a lot, but they're having fun and they're building some really, really crucial memories. And that's what you hope for. You hope that one of these programs on wheels or a field trip here or any visit here is what's talked about that night. Because so many times, hey, how was your day? What did you learn at school? And, and, you know, crickets or they don't remember and nothing comes to mind. But days where they get to experience that program, days where they get to visit the museum, they can't stop talking about it, which is like that's the ultimate win for a kid. It really is. When I uh, relate these stories and think about these things, it really makes me feel old. But helping out in the Children's Museum every once in a while now, just maybe during the holidays when we know we're going to be extra, extra busy or just need help cover some shifts. I always volunteer to be in Children's Museum. Just I'm not allowed to have favorites. I don't have favorites. But if you made me choose a favorite, clearly it's always going to be Children's Museum because you know, Children's Museum historian, his favorite has to be Children's Museum. So walking through Children's Museum... And so it actually happened just this last December. I'm walking through, and I hear these. They were come back from college over the holidays, and they were looking in the uh, kids' space area now, which is such lovely exhibit where kids are creating art and exploring. It's such open-ended exploration. It's amazing. But for those of you who visited the Children's Museum ages ago, you will remember that uh, kids' space used to be children just like me, where we had 11 children from around the world and what they played with and what they ate, um, like these lovely little vignettes. So I hear this uh, girl come in, probably 2021, talking about you know college, and she stops. She's like, oh my gosh, where's children just like me? And she's like, Sarala from India was right there, and Tilian from Vietnam was right there, and Erdene from Mongolia was right over there. And they had the like, oh my gosh, that's Erdene's yurt. And they turned that into like a little fun thing in kids' space. Like, oh my gosh, this was like 20 years ago for you, and you still remember your experiences here, and you can sit and you can pick and pinpoint every little difference between the Children's Museum that you visited decades ago and now. It's just fascinating. Again, give me a little ache in the back that like, (laughs) oh, I was here working. I was here managing the museum when you were three years old playing in here. But that's amazing you have those memories. You went back to your office and you... You hit the ibuprofen. I did. A little ibuprofen, (laughs) a little bit of antacids, took a nap. It was great. That's where we're at now with the Children's Museum celebrating 25 years in this building. 
now those kids who grew up with it are starting to revisit with kids of their own. And it is like, it's like that moment when you show your kids your favorite movie growing up and there's all that anxiety that they're not going to think it's cool or they're going to think it's lame, except you see them have as much fun at the Children's Museum as you did. So not only are you getting to experience their joy, you're nostalgic for the time that you spent there. So it's catching you on multiple levels. And that's what's really special about it is that you remember. You remember those learning moments. And as you said, you can almost remember exactly where every piece was from your childhood. And I hope that that encourages the grown-ups to play a little bit too. We often call when I'm leading tours with uh, adults, I also often call ourselves big kids. And as big kids, we don't get to play. I know we start to lose that concept a little bit when we're in middle school because at that point you need to be cool. Then you're in high school and there's just all this pressure from school and colleges and trades. And then you have the college and the workplace and we lose the ability to just play and relax and have fun. And sometimes we can find those outlets with different things, music or hiking or creating art or whatever it is. Um, but sometimes it's just it's it's all work. And so if I can have those people come back with their kids and like that's what it was like when I was young to just be so free and, and not care that I was running, flopping my arms around and not care that this would be totally me. I see my child and they're creating this lovely piece of art and my stick figures aren't even stick figures of stick figures, but I don't care. I'm just going to have fun doing this and drawing it and playing with my child. You could see that. You're right. That would just be brilliant. It gives everyone their own Peter Pan moment. Ah, yes. Yes. And they do get to play when they come back because inevitably you're in the woods and you have no idea where your your kid just went because the the way everything connects and twists around in there, I better go check it out. I better go check on them. And knowing how you have to get up to the second level in there is really amusing to think of when you see the adults walking around up there. You get humbled very quick about how inflexible you've become. <laughs> How, uh, how things aren't quite as big as they used to be uh, as you try to crawl through tunnels and you're shimming your shoulders through. Yeah, we totally Doctor who that exhibit some days, I think. Like, this thing was definitely much bigger when I was younger, absolutely. So the week before we opened the Children's Museum, back in 98, we did uh, staff and contractor nights, uh, and we did, like, a big member night, and I recall the member night, and this was the week before we opened to the public in the woods and clearly just so much energy and, and amazing. And so this child comes up and they say, my dad is stuck. <laughs> and so like, okay, let's, uh, let's check this out, see what's going on. So we head over and so I'm going to say Swiss cheese. I think anybody who's visited the woods before knows exactly what the Swiss cheese is, but it's the big metal grade has the, uh, kind of the different levels and you have to climb up four or five levels through these little holes to get there. Definitely possible. That's something my staff and I used to uh, challenge ourselves every once. Like, all right, once a month, we're all going to go through the Swiss cheese just to keep ourselves young and prove that we can do it. So I go over there, and sure enough, this dad was just, he was trying to be ambitious, and he got stuck between a couple levels and could not get himself out. And so clearly exhibit designers, brilliant. We designed, that's easy enough. Got a couple locks. We got a little padlock. We'll open this thing up. And I hear this lady screaming, no! And so I stop and she's like, we got to take a photo of him first. <laughs> totally was his wife. And they're all taking photos of him stuck in there. He was very good natured about it, but just hilarious that, um, no, we weren't letting him out until it was all captured on camera. He learned through play in that moment too. Oh, he did. He, uh, he learned, uh, I think he learned probably to take the stairs from now on <laughs> um, and knew what type of risks he did. So here we go. If he was me, riding the tricycle down the stairs two times in a row. He might have gone right back in, but no, he was safe. He did learn. He knew, I'll just take the stairs next time. I've never done the Swiss cheese because I felt like I'm not allowed to, but now you're giving me full permission. So, And I know that I can easily be extricated from it without the jaws of life. Without the jaws of life, absolutely. So uh, so what I'm thinking then is this absolutely needs to be a uh, posted on the socials. I don't know if this is like a little TikTok video, a little Instagram video or something. We just do a little recording of like, all right, Cody's going to go through the Swiss cheese and um, hopefully make it through successfully. Um, but if not, then we will, depending on who's working that day, get you out quickly. <laughs> or I don't know, if you made somebody mad, they're like, which key is it again? I just don't know. <laughs> I will absolutely do this. This is on record. I will do this. And I will let Mitch film it, 
we'll just whatever happens happens be mindful of your pathways you go through just plan out because you definitely can fit through certain holes it's like when i used to go caving like that's a really tight hole but i believe you have to believe that you can get through it and if you do usually you will that's good because the planning the route is probably a little less my style and more you know what you'll just figure it out once you're in there which sounds like it's going to be amusing for everyone else. You will find such joy when you finally make your way through that. Yes. And and once once I'm stuck and you say as Wu-Tang said, it's for the kids. It is for the kids. That's right. For the big kid in this case, yes. but uh yes, for the kids. So channel your inner child, you'll be fine. It'll be great. So you came prepared, which is great. And I see on a list you have Bob Ross why? Yeah, I was thinking like, yeah, wow, I am just truly embracing the science nerd in myself that I created a list of things that, all right, I need to be ready. If Cody asks me about any of these things, just be ready to go. And it also helps save Mitch from like excessive editing and like Mitch just hit pause while I think for 20 minutes. Bob Ross. Yes. So um, my father is an amazing artist. I found my my artistic talent falls more in the, I think, the music realm, the playing music realm. As I mentioned earlier, my stick figures don't even look like stick figures. So um, visual art was never anything that I had felt I had any talent in or gave me any joy. But can, can you play an instrument? Can you, are you musical? Uh, I, so I, I played a trumpet for many years, all through elementary school, high school. I didn't play formally in college, but still just pulled it out to play. Yeah, I was a concert band, um, marching bands, jazz band, jazz band, totally my favorite. Um, so yeah, I played trumpet all through school. And then a couple years ago, I thought, so they're kind of like two things that as we were all at home during the, uh, the start of the pandemic, you know, there were two things that, uh, like I started and tried then the first one was like, I, Love, big fan, love many genres of music, but Celtic music, so anything Irish, Scottish, Welsh, um, just love it. And so I really wanted to pick up the fiddle and try that, but I was not that ambitious. So instead, I said, why don't I start with the, uh, call it the, the Irish tin whistle or the Irish whistle or so forth. So I started uh, playing that. And so I just, you know, just pulled out and play at home. You will not hear me playing in any Irish bars. Um, probably at a good, like, eighth grade level at this point, but I am finding joy in it. My wife does not find as much joy in it listening to me play as I do play, but that's fine. Head out on the back deck, pull out the Irish whistle, and just play. That's amazing. Yeah. So, I have no idea. Yeah, so and we used to have museum staff bands here, so um, maybe we'll just have to get one of those together. I think have to have a variety of instruments. I know we've got some really good guitar players and percussionists on staff, so they can find a way to work in a little uh, Irish whistle. I got them. So again, never was an artist. My father, brilliant artist, could see him just draw anything. Never found a joy in that. So my wife and I like, okay, what are we going to watch on TV tonight? What show? Turns out on Saturday nights, uh, 9 to 10, they play uh, one of the like CET, Create TV stations, plays an hour of the joy of painting. And so I remember my father watching that when I was young. And I thought like, yeah, okay, we'll give an episode a try. Like, Oh my gosh, I love Bob Ross. The happy clouds and the uh, uh, happy accidents we make. We don't make mistakes. We make happy accidents. And just the like love of and encouraging nature he has when he was painting. Like, huh. And so like, that's so great. That's fun. Never would have considered it. And then my wife, I think partially just to, just because she knew what it what, what it would do. She's like... So I got you for Christmas a Bob Ross painting kit, mostly because I just want to see you torture yourself trying to paint. Um, like, okay, Melissa, we got it. And so I have started painting in the Bob Ross like wet on wet style, where you put down your base coat of paint of like a white paint, and then you use the oil paints to paint through. And you're not going to be seeing my artwork in any galleries, but. I'm finding, for the first time, finding some fun and joy in doing some painting. What was always amazing about him is it it always looks so effortless. So it did make you feel like, oh, this is something I could do. And to watch the transformation of it was, was always really incredible. But it's that Mr. Rogers style of just, hey, 
be you, do your best, and whatever happens, happens. Yes, he was always so good with, like, I'm going to put my tree here, but this is your painting. I'm putting my clouds here, and I'm going to use this color. This is your painting. Do what you want to do with it. That's fine. You're not copying me. I'm like, I'm showing you how to make trees and make mountains and grassy areas, but these are your paintings. You do what you want. And I think that's such an important tenet with uh, art. We hear so much arts and crafts, and that is kind of one of those little buzzwordy things that I maybe slightly cringe a little bit when I hear arts and crafts because I see them as two very different things and both of them are very crucial but crafts seem to be very like you have a material you have a very specific end point like I'm going to make a bracelet or I'm going to uh, create this a necklace or maybe a drawing but it's going to look it needs to look exactly the same or very similar to this one that's already been created. So it's important you're learning to follow directions, that there are important steps one takes, good fine motor skills, very important things to crafts. But just to be able to say, here's a blank canvas and here are some paints. Paint whatever gives you joy. Or here's a bunch of items. Do you want to do a bracelet? Do you want to do a necklace? Do you want to do a little sculpture with these items? I don't know. You just create whatever is inspiring to you. And that kind of that more art open-ended based thing. Both of them are important, but Bob Ross is very much like, don't copy me. Like, I want to inspire you, but don't copy me. That's such a fascinating perspective. I've never thought of it that way. In school, often kids are doing crafts and and air quotes. They're studying something. They're learning something with a defined endpoint. Your goal is to learn and to know and be able to do this. Uh, Museum is the art portion. So it's open-ended. It's done when you say it's done, when you feel satisfied, when you... When you are happy with with what you've created or what you've learned and and you're drawn to different things, I mean the the entire museum is really set up in that way. But the children's museum, in particular, you kind of go into a central point and then it branches like a tree, and you you pick the branch you want to run to. Mm-hmm. And again, parents think you know I need to help and I need to like let me be engaged and oh let me help you get this ball here and and do this, but. They're learning the entire time, and often it is, you know, during the week, largely, it's pre, preschool-age kids. Yeah. They're learning valuable things before they're even reaching school, and you mentioned kids wanting to go in and say hi to Shelly each morning. That's learning compassion, and that's learning social skills, even if you are speaking to a turtle. And I think we saw that a lot during the pandemic, kids lagging a little bit in social skills because they just weren't able to interact with other people as much. But going in and being able to learn to share and learn boundaries mm-hmm. um, and learn care for other creatures that do not look like you, that aren't human beings, these are really, really important skills that kids are learning. Is, and I love that they so many of them are starting their journey in the Children's Museum and they see those connections with with Shelley or playing in waterworks. And as you mentioned, there are times that we learn to play by ourselves, but then having that like co-play, we're like, okay, I'm playing by myself, but there's some other people playing over here next to me. And then like, all right, we're playing together. We're, are we? Are we? Wait a second. We're playing together. Um, it's just these organic transitions. And some kids prefer like, no, I'm just, I'm going to do my own thing. Some kids really need and respond to that. And if maybe they're the only one at home of that age, having those connections where they can come and play is just you're so important. And that travels to the science museum and the history museums. And so thinking back to, again, some of those early years in children's museum, and we may even still see it now, is that we would have families come in like when the kids are maybe a year old. And they've got like, all right, we've got our membership. And we would see them like three days a week. And it's sure enough, they would be every Monday for our Super Sprouts art-based activity. And every Wednesday, sure enough, they would be there for story tree time. And they might just come in. They'd get there at 10, play to 11, do story time. And then I say lunch and go home. But we saw them three days a week for so many years. And you think about, wow, that what amazing skill development these kids are getting before they even start preschool. And it also led to kind of the sad times because we would see them three days a week for so many years and like, okay, well, we can only come two days a week now because we've got preschool and then really got sad when it was, okay, it's August. They start kindergarten in two weeks. We're not going to be able to come during the week anymore. Um, And it was always such bittersweet because you just saw like, wow how this child who came in a stroller when they were six months old and now look at them and they're playing and how much 
they've grown. And then like, oh, we're not going to see them. And then every once in a while, you'd see them on a Saturday or they would they would come in when they were a little bit older. But uh, think like, oh, wow, we were such an important part of them growing up in their development. So that helped you feel good. And they're an important part of us as well. And everyone who gets to interact with them. And I think that, you know, a lot of times parents may not realize that and, and guests may not realize that, that we're here because we want you here. We're here because you're here and your experience also shapes our experience. I love the thinking here because it honestly is our museum. Like it's not, when I say our, it's like our everyone's museum it's the people who designed it and the people who build it and the people who work here every day and the people who come and visit every day because we learn and connect with you as much as you learn and connect with us and yeah so it really is our collective museum it's this living breathing experience and, and figuring out how we can continue to shape that and what are we seeing people resonate with and how do we incorporate that into the next exhibit we're building or how do we amplify that in this current exhibit uh, so it's this constant learning experience, but this also emotional connection as well. I say that the uh, Museum of Natural History and Science and Cincinnati History Museum, those exhibits now are, um, you know, some little air quotes here, a little more children's museum-y than maybe the pre-restoration ones, because now I see toddlers and preschoolers playing in all of the galleries in the Science Museum and History Museum. And so there really are, thinking about the young kids and the bigger kids and then the high school kids and the grown-ups and the grandparents they all can find something to connect with in all of these galleries and so just love that you can keep families to explore together and all find something different depending on their uh, where they are in their lives and, and that's been an intentional effort by the museum over the past really five to six years to make every exhibit accessible on different levels and so you can get as much as you want out of each of them but you should never walk through a place that feels inaccessible to mm-hmm. someone to, to walk through an exhibit and say, oh, this is you're not going to get this. You're not going to understand this. We'll come back in a, a few years. There should still be something um, that captivates people at every learning level, every age level in each exhibit. I've seen the preschool groups and the uh, kindergarten groups and the high school groups and everything in between come through. And I can just see a pinpoint of like, there's something that connects everywhere they're all finding something and so that just brings such great joy for for our collective museum that we're all finding those those uh things that give us joy do you have a favorite moment or memory in your 27 years with the museum so i knew this question was coming because i've heard the podcasts i've heard these things so difficult to answer this question um but i think what resonates the most and my mind always goes to this first so there might be others but i'm going to go back to when children's museum opened as part of union terminal because when there was just such energy behind that and those first oh my gosh those first seven eight months i mean we've seen big crowds at the museum through different featured exhibits um, through different exhibit openings but those first like eight months from that you know october 24th through that summer, I have never in my life seen crowds. The people were just so excited. There were lines going from the museum entrance, queued through the Children's Museum lobby, all the way up into the rotunda, wrapped around the rotunda just to get into the Children's Museum. People were lined up because the woods was so full. We couldn't let more people into the woods. People were lined up from the woods all the way down past Kidstown just to get into the woods. They were so excited. When schools came, we, we always do a little, just like, welcome, we're so excited you're here. Please remember to walk when you're in the museum and we want you to have fun. There were so many school kids coming here. We were standing on the ticket taker desk shouting so that all of these, these hundreds of school kids at a time could hear us as they were going into the museum. We've had lovely, wonderful crowds um, since then. But wow, the energy when the Children's Museum opened here has just, haven't seen anything to beat it. There's been lovely events and lovely programs over the years, and I'll always connect with those. But, wow, that opening, just hard to beat. That's the memory you go back to. But thinking of the Children's Museum through a child's eyes, I mean, every day feels like it's brand new to them or it's it's constantly exciting to them. It's been here in this building for 25 years, and it's experienced some changes here and there. But, you know, we're here every day, and 
we see things, we have our favorite spots and, and things like that. But regardless of how many times kids come, I never see a kid walk through the Children's Museum and look like they're bored or that they don't know what to do. They may be trying to figure out what to do next or what to do first, but there's never a lack of excitement. No. I uh, One of our... Um former CEOs told the story he and he did, he did not come from the children's museum world so he was uh he, he told the story a lot where there was one day and it was kind of near the end of the day and there's this child who is just screaming and crying as they're going up the escalators and he thought oh my gosh what are my team members doing they're just making this kid cry and so the parent like they knew he was like given the look like what is wrong she's like Oh my God! No, no. She just had such a good time that uh, she doesn't want to leave. And just so many stories we hear about that. A lovely story um, many years ago from a mom who she grew up in the states, moved to Norway, and they came back on vacation. And her just miserable the whole time. Just such an overwhelming experience for her child. Just cried, cried, cried everything. And she's like gosh, are they even going to let me into the Children's Museum? Which we think, oh, that's sweet. We, uh, a quiet Children's Museum is a sad Children's Museum. <laughs> we want the shrieks of glee and the shrieks of crying because you don't want to leave. Um, but she said for the first time on that whole trip, like her child was just like, the eyes were so engaged and there was laughter and play and fun after the, an entire trip worth of crying. And um, yeah, those experiences are like, you're not bored and you're so engaged. And the first time you see the building up front and the first time you look in the rotunda and your first trip, maybe every trip down the escalators and you get that overlook of the woods, you could just see the jumping up and down. Like, I want to go there. I want to go there. But then as soon as you get in, like, but there are balls, but there's water. I mean, there's a cash register and blocks and a crane. Where do I go? Just so much. No, boredom is not a thing we see here. We talked about the jaws of life. Yeah. What What's another, what are some other kind of silly or just ridiculous stories that you've experienced? The first interaction I recall with a guest in my time here, so going back to the Jurassic Park exhibit, I remember I was holding a dinosaur skull. Actually, it might have been a Deinonychus. And so if our um, paleontology team is listening to this and said, Tony, you said that wrong, and it's not even a real dinosaur, and we never had one of those. I apologize. But I was holding the skull. And so this visitor comes in like, all right, I'm prepped. I'm ready. I'm trained. And I gave the most elegant, brilliant description. And I had the, the skull, and the kids were like kind of feeling the where the eyes would be and feeling the teeth. And the parents were just letting them explore. Like, oh, this is amazing. I rocked this. And then just as they stand up, the, the parents like, it's not real, right? And I thought, oh, no. And I go into this lovely description of like, oh, no, this is a cast, which is a model. And this is why we don't bring out the actual fossils. And I go through this like five-minute description. She's just waiting patiently as I finish. And she's like, no, like dinosaurs. Like they weren't real, right? <laughs> Didn't we just make those up for kids? Like, mm, they were kind of real. Yeah. Um, and so that gave me a very interesting perspective that people are going to come in with various knowledge bases. And so I just need to be prepared that I'm going to have a lot of grownups who don't know a thing about a dinosaur and may not think they're real. And I'm going to have a whole lot of preschoolers who are going to come in and correct me that I'm saying every dinosaur name wrong. And um, they're going to be far better paleontologists than I would ever be. And so, yeah, that's that's another one. My, my first museum interaction that I remember all those years ago was... Uh, dinosaurs are they real hmm uh, <laughs> which is um you know that happens still today <laughs> where uh people may have that same question mm -hmm. which Good man. yep so you started out in the science museum yep then you became the children's museum guy in my vernacular but now you're senior director of school and teacher partnerships which is taking us all the way back to the beginning of the episode What's that role like? What do you what do you do for the museum in that capacity? As any good manager should, they just have brilliant teammates and you get out of their way. And so I'm very lucky that I've got brilliant teammates and I just stay out of their way. So my team does so many things. And so every once in a while, I still get to go out and help my team with a program. And like sometimes I think, wow, you're pretty 
desperate if you're bringing Tony <laughs> Tony out of the bullpen to a help cover program. But it's so much fun getting to help out with an outreach program and uh, going back to my days when all I did was work in the museums and engage guests. So a little bit of that, but. My role, we, you know, Museum Center, we are the regional coordinator for Ohio History Day. And so for anybody who doesn't know Ohio History Day, think of it as a science fair, but for history. And so it's a national program that feeds into a state competition, that feeds into regional competitions. And so we're the regional host for uh, kind of the Southwest Ohio region. I manage the uh, kind of entire process of that, which is an event that we're hosting at Union Terminal again uh, each spring and just seeing these amazing creations that um, middle school and high school students are doing their they're writing skits and plays and filming documentaries and these like brilliantly eloquent essays, um, building websites all about like their projects and then finding community members to come in to give them encouragement and help them polish their projects. And actually somebody from our region was the top um, scorer from the state of Ohio at the national competition last year. And a couple of years ago, we had somebody from our region who won the national competition. So it's amazing. So love working on Ohio History Day. It's, um, it's a very humbling experience for me because you see the projects that these students create. And I'm just remembered that in sixth grade, and I was a history major in college. And so I go back to sixth grade where I made a diorama with a pizza box of probably like a civil war battle or something like that of a pizza box that was pretty lame and the pizza box had like the grease on the top and the bottom <laughs> i didn't even get a, a clean pizza box i i took the uh instructions very literally and but that was yeah. just that was the water the grease spots were the water yeah, that sure. they had to fight around it well we um We had different museum experiences, you and I, growing up in the days of the museum diorama, and that's what you saw in museums quite often. So we were just informed by our experience. Now kids can come through and see our amazing History Museum exhibits, and uh, they can forego the pizza boxes and film documentaries and build these amazing exhibits where they have the actual American Disabilities Act, and they build the exact number of stairs that go up to the Capitol when they did Capitol sit-ins. to like advocate for the American Disabilities Act and those things, like yeah, we 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 did not have those the skills and tools, but wow for them. No, it is it's incredible what these students are doing in in Ohio History Day. Yeah. So and and we we put calls out for judges for mm-hmm. this, and so a lot of staff participate and, and help out, and it is a really enriching and and humbling experience as well. But it, it's encouraging to think that there's this level of talent ready right now. They're just brilliant. They come in for their interviews, and you could tell there's a little bit of nervousness to them, but our judges are just so encouraging. And they're explaining the passion behind their projects and why they chose that and how they conducted their research. And some of them are, are even connecting with the um, History Library archives here. Just we love that. When I retire in, oh, let's see, 20, what did we say, 27 years, so throw in at least another 23 years or so. So I retire in 23-ish years or more. And people say like, all right, Tony, maybe top projects you're most proud of probably would be Excite. And of course, in the museum world, we're all about our acronyms. Yeah. Um, So Excite is Early Childhood Science Inquiry Teacher Education. And it's a program that um, my colleague, Miss Karen, who definitely we need to get on a podcast sometime, Miss Karen and I designed this back in uh, 2009. And this was all about getting early childhood educators to feel confident leading science experiences in their classrooms. Um, And we kind of talked earlier about we make science so complicated for preschoolers, but it's not. And it's showing them when you're teaching literacy skills, these are ways to bring in science. And when you're teaching math or you're just letting the kids play, open-ended play in the classroom, here are little things you can do to get them engaged in the process. And you just see like the teachers go through this program every year since 2009. They leave with such confidence leading science and thinking, oh my gosh, I can be a scientist and how much their kids embrace that and that we were able to bring that out with them. So I think Excite's always going to be one of my top favorite memories and programs here. We think a lot about museums, um, being supplemental learning for students, but also for helping educators as well and, and being a resource for educators. Uh, and so I, I've always thought Excite is so cool and, and such a great opportunity for educators and, and for us 
to provide because a lot of times we're we're very kid focused, mm-hmm. but thinking about well, who's educating those, who yeah. who's instructing those, and thinking that if we can work with one educator, that's going to trickle down to twenty students every single year. So I think that's such an impactful program as well. You nailed it right there. The fact that just the the interaction with those educators, the probably thousands of students who then will be impacted by kind of those encounters with that teacher, that confident teacher who can encourage that play and that connection with the kids and bringing science into the classroom. You you nailed it right there. Perfect. If you could, and you've you've worn a lot of hats, so I, I don't know how many more you could pick from but if you could trade roles with one person in the museum for a day who would that be oh wow i feel so bad because i would want to not destroy all the amazing things they've done over their career in that one single day and not being able to fill even remotely fill their shoes you know what i think i'm gonna go um our team out at the edge of appalachia Oh, that's great. Um, I love to hike, and I and that is one of my favorite spaces to hike is the trails out at the edge. Just absolutely stunning. And it's not that far of a drive from Cincinnati either, so absolutely gorgeous. But the team out there, one, I mean, you can walk around with uh, with Chris, Robin, and Mark, and they'll point out a fern and be like, Tony, let me tell you why this is the coolest fern you will ever see in your life. And they'll be pointing to one little fern and a sea of other types of ferns. And I will leave that conversation with, that is the flipping coolest fern I've ever seen in my entire life. And so it's, it's just gorgeous out there, kind of flipping back to, that's outside. Um, and just everything that they do out there and educating outside and the research that happens kind of just brings back to that mix of like, here's Tony the scientist. Tony the educator, Tony who loves to be outside. So probably would not survive those, you know, sultry um, 90 degree July days out on the trails, doing work, educating kids. Probably like, no, Tony likes the air conditioned uh, office or classrooms <laughs> here at the museum. But being out at the edge, that probably would be my like my switch for the day. I, this time of year in October, whew, that's that's beautiful. Since many of you will be hearing this in, in October, Definitely get out to the edge. Um, I think the team out there would say, like, come out anytime, but I think fall colors would be gorgeous. And I also hear that uh, spring is also stunning when you start to get the little spring wildflowers popping up. It is a stunning place and so close. And you hit on something that I think is so important just universally is that people with passion are fascinating. Regardless of what they're talking about, if they have that passion for it, they hook you and you're, you're just captivated. Mark and and Chris and Robin at the edge for, as you give mm-hmm. an example, but also as we've heard from you, when you just absolutely are in love with something, let's go back to early childhood development. Mm-hmm. Like I never realized it was that important, that it was that interesting. And so for people listening, encourage passion. Like yes. Everyone always jokes about their kids telling these really super long-winded stories about this random thing. <laughs> encourage that. There's a lot, of, um, a lot of debate around participation trophies and stuff like that and just not you know, giving your kids kind of a realistic view of things and that, yeah, some things aren't always going to be, no. be the best drawing or painting you've ever seen. But always encourage passion encourage kids and adults and your friends your family your loved ones like if they're passionate about something just ride that wave with them for so many years we always used the praise versus encouragement conversation it it reflects a lot with art but you can say praise like oh my gosh that piece of artwork is so pretty and so gorgeous i'm like you praise them okay they're going to feel good how are they going to feel if the next time they create a piece of artwork what if they don't get such like lovely praise from from you so we often talk about encouraging like wow i see you're working really hard on that project or i see that you are using a lot of purple would you please tell me why are you using purple and you probably might get a five minute explanation about why purple is the most amazing color ever and i want everything to be purple and you just like just encouraging them to to try and that i think encouraging them to try so many different things and that helps them find their interests and talking about like our staff 
goodness, you, you could walk through the museums and find the people who will just be passionate about dinosaurs or caves or, oh gosh, some of the people who are passionate about the history of the building and the history of inventions in our city. I mean, just the passion and everyone just comes through. Absolutely. It, it, being curious about yes. other people. It's interesting uh, because we're talking with you. We're talking about you, asking a lot of questions of you, but you are um, you're very good about being curious about other people, about learning from other people. Uh, and I think if everyone takes that moment to ask questions about someone else, a lot of people are reluctant to talk about themselves. Uh, we we get that a lot of people are like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I want to do the podcast because I don't want to have to talk about myself. It's no, people, it's good to be curious. It's good to let other people ask questions and and learn more. That's how you find out about people's passions. That's how you learn more things. And that's, I think, how you ingrain compassion as well. And if, if you're curious about other people and why they do things and, and what's important to them, I think everyone is a little bit better for it. So um, I'm really glad you took some time to talk with us to regale us with tales of the Children's Museum over 25 years, but also your 27 years here. That's incredible it was a lot of fun um yeah when you talk about like people i definitely came in today thinking uh i'm not one to talk about myself and so what it takes is somebody who was interested and a really good interviewer and just had the conversation this was this was not an interview this was a conversation and we can bring those things out from each other and learn these like fascinating new things and maybe inspire you to now you're going to pick up an instrument when we're done or I'm going to go try to climb through the Swiss cheese you know right after you do just like you know kind of like can just like lovely engagement and learning from each other so um Ooh, should we should we do a timed race to the Swiss cheese oh I'm so going to lose I mean I you've got experience though I do have experience so I feel like that uh matter of fact maybe we'll do it I will play just to make things even, I can play the whistle while I'm going through the Swiss cheese just oh, to try to even awesome. it up a little bit. So then it'll be an excuse for why that I am not an accomplished whistle player. That's a that's a real flex. Yeah, really, uh, really loving that. Big fails coming, but that's okay. I'll learn after that one time to never do it again. Tony will not be riding the bike down the stairs twice. Will not be riding a bike down the stairs the third time, <laughs> nor will he try to play the Irish whistle more than one time climbing through the Swiss cheese. Deal. All right. Deal. We'll hold you to it. Thank you, Tony. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Meanwhile at the Museum. Remember, if you liked what you heard, please rate and subscribe. But more importantly, come see for yourself. Visit cincymuseum.org to see the latest reasons to visit. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to tell us how much you love the show, send us an email at meanwhile at cincymuseum.org. Thanks for listening.